WBZ original. Yay! Oh, I'm so glad. Give it up, ladies and gentlemen. Hi, everybody. Finally made it. Are we on the air? No, um, no, we're about to start and embarrass you. You're not rolling on this. Is it? Oh, hell yeah. Oh, God. <laughs> Welcome into the Studio BZ podcast, everybody. I am Paula Evan, sitting here along with Liam Martin. Hi, Liam. Hello. Liam. Hi, John Keller. Hi, Hi Paula. John. Uh, here's what we're talking about this week. The global elite are fueling Boston's luxury housing boom, driving prices up for everyone. Uh, most of the condos you see being sold downtown are empty, and there's a new study out that suggests money laundering is going on, and no. Liam and I talked to the author of this study. <laughs> we wow. did. I, you talk about some of these condos, they go for six, seven million dollars. On average, in some of the buildings, they'll go for about that. And what's happening is people from overseas are setting up LLCs in, say, Delaware, buying up these units and storing their wealth in there and protecting it from taxes. And the result is that because they can afford to buy a few of these at 6 or $7 million a pop, everyone else's, else's housing costs go up. And in the meantime, they're not paying income taxes here. They're not, right. uh, you know, it's, uh, it's not good for the future Pretty, of the economy. It just adds to the bubble. How about and a good then, laugh after that? Yes, yeah. We'll, the, uh, <laughs> the Boston Comedy Festival. Uh, the finalists were here. You guys did this interview, right? Three of the finalists. And this year, four of the eight finalists were women. And so three of those women joined us. Mm-hmm. They are hilarious. We talked with them about what it's like to be a woman in stand-up. We talked with them what they think about Louis C.K. short-lived comeback there a couple mm. of months ago. And, and they Bill had a, Cosby a had just been sentenced. We did also you, asked him about did that. Did you see yeah. he popped up again? Yes, uh, Louis just C. the K. other no, night, no, an open mic night, a Two surprise appearance oh, in New York, and I guess uh, that he was booed and hissed by the crowd. It well, what's interesting is that each of these three stand-up women has a different take yeah. on the Louis C.K. comeback and whether or not they want to see him. And Louis C.K. Newton native, by the way. Oh, really? Yes. One of my don't don't pull that against me. <laughs> <laughs> One of my all-time favorite patriots, Matt mm. Light, a great oh. lineman for many years with the Pats. Uh, now he's involved in a, a very different kind of inspirational project. Yeah, what an absolute pleasure this guy is. I mean, everybody is used to seeing Matt Light, and he always gave like the greatest soundbite of any Patriots player every time we ever talked to him. He's just this lovely Midwestern guy, and I had the pleasure of interviewing him last Friday for an Eye on Education story that is coming up. So I don't want to give away exactly what the story is until it runs uh, uh, next week. That story is slated for October 12th. But I had the opportunity to talk to him. It was the day before his Patriots Hall of Fame induction. His family had events starting at 10 a.m. with the Patriots in Foxborough. He still took the time to meet me at 9 o'clock at a local high school because this was so important to him. And I talked to him about how much... Uh, how important a role music had played in his life. I don't know if you remember about 10 years ago, Bob Lobel dug up or someone fed him video of Matt Light singing in high school. Yes. And it was just adorable. And then Donald Trump Jr. weighed in on this whole Me Too era, the Brett Kavanaugh confirmation stuff, saying that he is very worried about what this is doing to the young men in our country. And President Trump uh, this morning, Tuesday morning, said something along the same lines. So we'll play that, that sound and we'll uh, have a few things to say about that. Well, I say that it's a very scary time for young men in America when you can be uh, guilty of something that you may not be guilty of. This is a very, very, this is a very difficult time. 
What's happening here has much more to do than even the appointment of a Supreme Court justice. All right. So let me stipulate one thing right off the top here. Somewhere in that word salad, there is a valid point. Sure. Mm -hmm. Uh, We do have a presumption of innocence in our legal system for very good reasons. False accusations can and do uh, cause great harm and injustice to the falsely accused. Mm -hmm. That is all true. Having said that, uh, I think we've reached a new low here, and let me tell you why. First of all, the study after study shows that false accusations in the legal system, false rape claims, and, and, and so forth, or false harassment claims, while they do occur, are extremely rare. Very rare. So that's fact number one for those who care about facts. And fact number two is, if you ask me, I mean, I grew up in a household surrounded by strong women. My father was kind of an early feminist. So uh, I hope that I was raised in an environment of sort of being aware of and sensitive to the way that women are often abused and harassed and belittled and ignored in our culture. But the Me Too hashtag really brought my understanding of what was going on to a whole new level and the reaction of the women in my life, liberal women, conservative women, older women, younger women, all saying, oh, yeah, yep, that stuff that. happens all the time. I think, you know, there are a couple of different things work here and John is right that I think most reasonable people and we've all been discussing the testimony the evidence it clearly touched people in a way that they did not anticipate listening to both Dr. Ford and Brett Kavanaugh but I think what you see immediately is the president articulating the fear that men who agree with him are going to that Oh, my goodness, someone can make a charge, 36 years old, without corroboration, and it's going to upend the lives of men everywhere. And it's going too far. And That's it's, what we've well, been hearing. Me too, too is going too far. Right. And now it's the Salem witch trials. Yeah, right. right. That uh, you're going to be able to just hurl out an accusation. I do think Dr. Ford's testimony upended everything. Well, I think she what, was uh, so credible and moving. The one thing I would say about... The presumption of innocence, because of course it is standard in our society, is that we're not talking about a criminal case here. We're talking about right. whether or not he's going to be given a job. And to be named a Supreme Court justice is probably one of the highest privileges in the country. And we're not necessarily just going to throw out an accusation, multiple accusations, simply because there's not enough corroborating evidence. You know what I think doesn't help, though, the argument? Have you noticed the argument over the last four days has shifted to his college drinking? The lack of Mm. kind of people being able to find witnesses. Clearly, there's never going to be any forensic evidence. But the inability to find even Dr. Ford's friend or people who she says who were there to back up her story Suddenly now it's he was an out of control drinker and we're going to talk to every Yale classmate to talk about how he was the guy at the you know standing next to the ke- tap in the keg, and I think that well, that I think that too that... I just think that that has added to the fuel of this notion of well if this doesn't work then we're going to go. To well, that. I don't doubt yep. that it has, but the the issue here is whether or not he told the truth under oath again when he wants to be a Supreme Court justice. 
He is applying right. for a job to be a I justice mean, I, on the highest court in the land if he was untruthful or mischaracterized his behavior, whether he was in high school or college, it is fair game. It's something that should be looked at. And please, Paul, Paul, I mean, you're talking about two, I think, at least two different sets of people. Yes, there are the rank partisans who, want, who didn't want Kavanaugh anywhere near the court from day one, didn't need all Always this to happen to and feel this. that way. Yes, they're going to keep moving the goalposts until they run out of basketball court. But <laughs> to me, I think the broader thing here is you and I were talking before about how there are some conservatives or Republicans who are saying, oh, well, now all, right. so, all of a well, sudden suddenly the social are, liberals are so are worried about this while, while with Bill Clinton they mm, look the right. other way. Yeah. But with Ted Kennedy but for Demo- 50 years, and they Kennedy. looked the other way. But no longer. Right. No but, longer. But I Bill think Clinton drove younger Democratic right. voters and this women is voters the away from Hillary mm. in the last election. Right. 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 I think this is the difference. Well, I you think- and I were saying that there seems to be hypocrisy on both sides here. Exactly. The same people who were throwing out the allegations right. against Bill Clinton in the 90s right. and saying, look, it seems like these are political activists, right. so we don't believe this, are the same ones now fully embracing the allegations right. against Brett Kavanaugh. And on the other end, the same ones who wanted to throw President Clinton out of office mm-hmm. because of his sexual exploits mm. are now saying, none of this matters. We can't believe these right. women. They're political activists. There's hypocrisy on both sides, as think, there often is. Yeah, I think even more than that, it's at the point where the kind of um, conservative commentariat that's existed for the last 30 years, really since the Clinton era moving forward, you're, you know, Laura Ingram, Ann Coulter, Michelle Malkin, like that kind of commentator is saying, oh, when it promoted their political agenda, uh, Ted Kennedy was the lion of the Senate, mm. despite Chappaquiddick yeah. uh, open, you know, the incident with Chris Dodd in a Georgetown bar restaurant Palm Beach. where they were witnessed with a woman or the alleged rape in Palm Beach where he was present. Involving his nephew. Involving yeah. his nephew. Yeah. And listen, uh, the uh, not to use an inappropriate analogy, but the cat is out of the bag here. OK, uh, Look at uh, if the Republicans want to brand themselves as the anti-Me Too, um, rationalizing away, politicizing everything and basically discrediting the broader testimony of women and the broader emerging refusal of women to shut up and take it anymore. They can do that and they'll appeal to, they'll have their followers who will say, yes, right on, make America great again. But they are going to miss the next train into the station. Because first of all, look at uh, the prominent politicians who've really been uh, uh, turned on uh, by huh. Al uh, Franken. by voters, Al there's Al Franken and uh, prominent you know ch- uh, 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 media figures like Charlie Rose and and comics. I mean, these are people who are being cast out, if you will, by generally speaking, a liberal younger constituency. Right. If the idea that conservatives or the Trumps or anyone else, if they think they're going to fight back against Me Too and put it back into its box, mm. I think they're out of their mind. Well, not that anyone never gonna cares happen. what I think, but I, 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 I do we wonder, do. I do think whether Brett Kavanaugh is confirmed will tell us a lot about mm. how this will play out in November. Mm-hmm. If he's confirmed, I think you'll see women turning up to the polls in record numbers, Furious. outraged. 
that this man who was credibly accused has been put onto the Supreme Court. If he's not confirmed, I think you could see a backlash from Republicans who say he was otherwise qualified for the bench. There's no real corroboration, no eyewitnesses to these We're events. We're not discussing his life as a jurist here. And, right? and yet he is not sitting on the bench because this, again, and they would use this terminology, it, it has all gone too far. It has gone too far. There's no due process. There's no presumption of innocence. I could see it working that way if he's not confirmed. And that's an interesting idea Can't if you're the, the Republicans. Polls. Yeah. Laura yeah. Ingram, Rush Limbaugh, when you read all of what they are saying, that's what they say. Right. The base will absolutely be fired up in a way that might not have yeah. happened and, right. if Kavanaugh is not And confirmed. I think they're whistling past the graveyard, but we'll see, won't we? Yeah. Everyone knows how expensive it is to try to find housing in Boston, but what they might not know is this kind of mysterious global buying up of luxury condos in Boston that is feeding that problem and making it much worse. There's a new study out uh, about a month ago called Towering Excess, The Perils of the Luxury Real Estate Boom for Bostonians. It is done by the Institute for Policy Studies in Washington, D.C., but the author of the study, Chuck Collins, along with a few others, he lives in Boston, and he has seen this firsthand. And what they found as they started looking at these units is that billionaires overseas and here in the U.S. who don't even necessarily live in Boston are taking out LLCs, these limited liability companies, or doing it through other shell corporations, buying up the units, not even living in them, and using it as wealth storage. And the result has been skyrocketing prices for everyone else, people being moved out of Boston into the outskirts of the city, and... uh, a widening of both income inequality and racial income inequality. And we get into some some of those statistics in our interview with Chuck Collins. Yeah, yeah. He, he brought up so many interesting points that as people see the building boom going on and all of these high rises going up, the prices are so out of sight. I think people are wondering, who's possibly buying this stuff? Well, it's mm. not somebody down the street. This is Greater Boston, cradle of American democracy. So for this study, you looked at uh, more than 1,800 luxury units in Boston with an average price of $3 million for these condos. And you found that more than a third of them are owned by these limited liability companies, otherwise known as LLCs. And these are their shell companies that people can use to obscure their identity when they're buying a property like this. Why are people buying them through these LLCs? Well, part of it is uh, you per- are limiting your liability. That's a good reason. But part of it is to obscure uh, ownership. And half those corporations are incorporated in Delaware, which is kind of like the premier secrecy jurisdiction. If you want to hide money or or engage in illicit activity, incorporate in Delaware. And so in theory, these could be foreign investors from China or wherever who open up an LLC in Delaware, then pour the money into this Boston condo That's to right. house their money there, basically. We just started to look at what we called some red flag transactions. So you see a Delaware incorporated shell company uh, purchasing with cash an $11 million condo in a building in Boston. Mm. In other parts of the country, if we were in New York or Miami, that would trigger uh, sort of federal oversight, but not in Boston because we're not, we're not currently being uh, overseen by that arm of the Treasury Department. Mm. And you point out some examples here. Uh, the Mandarin Hotel at the Prue, 
51 condos sold for an average of six and a half million dollars and more than half of those are owned by trusts LLCs or shell corporations so what did your study find that when this happens and you have all of these this buying power that's anonymous mm -hmm. what does it do to the cost of housing for everyone else well I think one of the things that's happening is this isn't like our parents generation building boom because there's so much global money mm -hmm. uh, so there's sort of a global billionaire class that's looking to park their money in a safe haven mm -hmm. and Boston is a good market for that so some of the demand uh, isn't housing for people to live in it's what we would call wealth storage units mm. it's like just a place to park money and hold value and so then that has a, a ripple effect because there are people who are moving in from the suburbs empty nesters and they're buying sure. real estate and they're affluent but they're not able to buy in some of these mm. these rising markets so they're kind of pushed into the neighborhoods so there's kind of a ripple effect out into the neighborhoods. It's kind of the Manhattanization of Boston mm. is what people have started to call it. And you argue that this is especially bad for Boston's income inequality which is already pretty high. Yeah. Specifically you say along racial lines and you cite this one statistic that I found particularly mind-boggling. In 2015 not a single home mortgage loan was issued to a black person in the Back Bay, downtown Fenway, or South Boston waterfront the entire year, not a single one to a black family. Why is luxury housing exacerbating not just income inequality, but racial income inequality in Boston? Yeah, and, uh, and that studies the Mass Community Banking uh, Association yep. looks at that every year. Um, what, what I think is that there's, we already have a, an enormous racial wealth divide when it comes to ownership of assets. And then you have whole neighborhoods, as you described, where the properties are so overvalued and so, and, access to credit for people of color is is harder to get so I think of this as like supercharging the existing trends supercharging the existing inequalities that are unfortunately exist right. in our city but of course you know that some people would say well wait a minute you know let's look back 10 years we were all in such dire straits the economy mm. was in such a precarious position all this building is great this is great boom for the city it's creating jobs and you argue that the Menino administration and the current Walsh administration have, and your quote here, is permitted this explosion in luxury real estate. But what do you want them to do? It gives property taxes, it creates jobs, it brings so yeah. much positive impact to the city. How can the Walsh administration or any other really turn their back? Well, I think you're absolutely right. This is an enormous source of jobs. It is property tax revenue. The city does a good job negotiating with developers to get some affordable housing out of each deal. Sure. I would just say we can do more. This is global wealth touching down in Boston. Mm. We could have a luxury, a very high-end luxury real estate transfer tax as they do in San Francisco and some other cities that would actually capture some of that revenue. We could discourage vacancy with a vacancy tax uh, and we could require these property owners to disclose who the owners are. Uh, and I think that would help deal with the, the risks of illicit funds coming in and, and, and buying some of these condos. Well, Chuck Collins of the Institute for Policy Studies, thank you so much for coming in. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me. It's possible now with new programs and custom
Um, so I met Matt Light very early in the morning. This was the day before his induction into the Patriots Hall of Fame, mm. uh, which, you know, there were events going on. His family was very busy. But he still took the time to come meet me for this Ion Education story that I'm working on, which has to do with the uh, an effort by the music department in Foxborough in the public schools. And so I started to ask him um, about his history with music. And, it, you know, it, it led me to... Uh, just thinking about the way we educate boys in America now. Hmm. Um, I love the fact that he said kids shouldn't just be playing three sports all the time. And, you know, Hmm. it opens up different parts of you and parts of the brain and how much he enjoyed that. And, John, I know you've raised sons. I I just think it's so healthy to hear uh, from a Patriots player where you might not know about this part of him uh, to to show – people raising boys, uh, they're not all going to get to the NFL, and you better explore all of their interests. I think people are increasingly getting wise to that. You know, the public high school that my boys went to, uh, I noticed right away had a real culture that they'd established where members of the football team were in the poetry club Uh and uh, guys on the hockey team were acting in theater productions. Mm -hmm. And uh, sure, there were cliques. And sure, there may have been some, if you will, old-fashioned role-playing going on. (laughs) But uh, those barriers are coming down. And and, uh, uh, I I think it's because families are demanding it. It's true. People are realizing you can't... If you send a, a, a boy, a teenage boy, out into the world with 1950s-style <laughs> attitudes, uh, he's going to struggle. He's well, you, struggle. you and I have talked a lot, Paula, about mm-hmm. how American schools have, for several decades now, kind of been failing mm-hmm. American boys. Yeah, they are suspended at much higher rates. Mm-hmm. Uh, they don't graduate as as uh, at as high rates as right. their female counterparts. They don't get into college at the same rates. And I don't know exactly what the remedy is. It seems that school in, in general is kind of structured more for the success of mm. a female student than for a male student. But I do think that giving boys several outlets during the course yes. of the day would be helpful. And if that's having them explore music and then some sports and letting them right. do some recess, and it just seems well, I, I to me that, that there should be a lot of different things going on. You were an athlete, and yeah. you really discovered your love for theater once you got to Harvard. Yes. You were in yeah. a lot of plays. I was in a lot of plays, and um, it was it was fantastic. It was a totally different world. It was a very good way to meet girls because <laughs> uh, I was that. one of not that many guys who <laughs> wanted to do it, and um, and yeah, it was a, it was eye opening. You learned mm. about musical theater, which I didn't know anything about musical right. theater. You learned how to, you learned about music. You learned how to yeah. sing. You learned how to access different parts of your your brain. So yeah. I do think whether it's music or theater and and uh, you know mixing it in with sports, we got to figure out a way to kind of make it more diverse. Well, you know what else a lot of schools are doing uh, mm. these days uh, that uh, that was wasn't true in my day is uh, they have uh, compulsory public service. Yes, well, the, yeah, uh, both community of my boys. service is huge. And, you know, if, if you're a uh, sort of a mm-hmm. an arrogant high school jock yeah. in the making, not looking at you there, Lee, <laughs> you, know, you were ever like that. But um, uh, yeah. And then you're going after school mm. a couple days a week to work at a nursing yeah. home. 
yeah. or uh, or to tutor very young children. I think it has uh, the kind of effect you're yeah. you're talking about to get outside yourself. You get outside that zone. I think yeah. one of the best things I I've I have two girls and two boys now who have gone through high school, and at my boys' high school too, as you talked about your son's school. Uh, it was strongly encouraged that the boy who was maybe really academically focused in science and math uh, try to go play hockey. Uh, or these, you know, football players with those big thick necks were singing in the chorus. And part of it, which I thought was really interesting, is they pushed boys where they were uncomfortable to go. And I think there's nothing an adolescent boy loves more than to get into a big crowd and disappear. Yeah. Just go under the radar. Especially when you're six foot seven, Matt Light. Uh, exactly. Pounds, and <laughs> exactly. all of a sudden you're in a, a right. musical and You're high not going to hide. But yeah. also, it teaches them to be leaders and followers, to appreciate that other people have gifts. Maybe I'm not going to be the lead in the musical, but I can appreciate as an athlete that some kid is musically gifted, and that's a different talent than what I have. I just think getting uh, boys, as you say, Liam, from being pigeonholed getting them outside themselves. You see the joy in Matt Light's voice and his life when you hear him talk about how well-rounded he was. Our newscasters, our editors all work as an efficient, well-coordinated, fact-finding team. So Matt, thank you for doing this on such a a busy weekend. Uh, Just talk a little bit about how important music was to you growing up in school. Yeah, it's kind of weird. I mean, everybody associates, you know, the big furry animal with football and... (laughs) And, and, and it was a huge part of my life, um, but a much bigger part of my life has always been music. And so I've got a father that played with the big bands, everything, everybody from Woody Herman to Cy Zentner was on stage with Ray Charles and, you know, on and on and on. And he toured the country. And what my mother, um, my father was a uh, upright bass player. And so during the big band and the swing era and all that stuff, I mean, I grew up with all of it, so I really understand it, but it was an amazing moment in time, and, and he lived that, and he traveled all over the country, and you know, my father's a guy that could also play any instrument on earth, period, end of story. So it was very dynamic because he met my mom when she put in an ad at a local paper up in Michigan for a bass player, and so she was teaching music. She had a band. My parents met. My mom um, retired probably six, seven years ago after 35 years teaching music um, at all levels from kindergarten to high school. So um, it's in my blood. I didn't pick up the ability to play, but I, I used to do a little singing and dancing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we've I'm strong that. enough to admit that. Yeah. We've seen a little singing <laughs> that we've shown on WBZ. We might have a little clip of that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but so, so as you were going through school, obviously, as a pretty elite athlete, it still remained a big part of your life. And what would you say to parents of kids out there, you know, who feel like they've got to commit to that one sport and that's all they do. What did it do for you as a whole person? Yeah, you know, it was, I I used to tell people even in in the moment, which is kind of rare, but when I was in high school, we put in more hours in a show choir than I ever did in sports. Hmm. And as tough as a coach can be, um, I would put my director up against Dante Scarnecchia or anybody else (laughs) that's ever coached a game of football. Because they're perfectionists, you know, and, and when you look at music and you look at how you have to compose things and how you have to, you know, organize all the different instruments that make up a group or an ensemble or whatever it is, if one person's not right, it affects everybody, it affects the whole piece. And so, you know, I've always loved that dynamic and, I, and I've always looked at sports too and said that, you know, no kid should play three sports. I mean, I don't care if you're the best athlete on earth. 
you know, everything else will suffer if it's all about sports. And, and that's in life, right? I mean, you got to be balanced in so many ways. So, you know, I, I always encourage my own kids, other kids, you know, think outside the box, do a debate team, do, you know, music, do something other than just sports, because that is going to be your life. You might discover something about yourself that you didn't realize. Sure. But also, back to music, it's a discipline. Right, mm -hmm. and so you have to learn to be precise and as disciplined, obviously, as any athlete is. Yeah, without and, a doubt. And to be on a team. And music is is so dynamic in so many ways. I mean, you can express yourself as an athlete, but you got to play within the rules, and you got to do all these things, and you have to do the same thing in music. But there is this ability to develop something that's truly unique, truly your own. And you know, I've, I've been fortunate. Um, you know, like I said, I grew up in music, but I get to see my kids now, and you know, my daughter started playing her violin at probably age seven and it was cool to see her work with my dad and my mom and and it was neat to also see her you know develop through a music program that is as good as it gets in the state and we're very fortunate to have that here in Foxborough. So you saw the talent the musical genes playing out in your daughter. Yeah it skipped a generation <laughs> you know it, 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 you know here in Foxborough and we've raised our kids here you know the whole time it's it, we're very fortunate to have the ability to introduce her to a group and, and peers and, and a program that really prides itself in, in doing things at a very high level. Because people might not appreciate this. Talk about the music program in Foxborough. Yeah, you know, look, we heard about it before we even got to Foxborough. And they've done some very unique things and they've always competed at a very high level. And you can get all those stats and those numbers, but when you talk to the parents and you talk to the people that make up the community and they say, hey, look, my, my, my daughter and my son graduated 15 years ago and it was incredible then then you know it, it, the history is there. Yeah. So we're very fortunate. You can see the influence when a community makes music a priority. Sure, yeah, and they do. And I mean, we've had so many of our family members from back home that have sat in this auditorium, you know, and, and They're amazed. seen some amazing shows, you know. Yeah. Each day, hundreds of thousands of people pour into the one square mile of downtown. Mile of downtown That's mile. it. We've fooled them again. Listen. Honest answer. Jonathan Case, our, our executive producer, you can weigh in on this. Are we talking? I'm not an executive. But okay, no, all right, I think I'd right. say so. Are we talking too much? I mean, that's um, what the idea is, right? John, I don't <laughs> think that's, that's what editing is for. Oh, that's right. I don't think I'm talking enough, frankly, is what uh -oh. I say at home. That's what I say to my wife. I'm not talking enough. You haven't heard my opinion enough. I haven't I have, right enough. I have just demonstrated the lesson we should never forget from the O.J. Yes. Simpson trial. Oh, boy. That you never, as a lawyer, ask a question to which you do not already know the answer. <laughs> that's right. Anyway, that's it for this week. Uh, you can, uh, well, obviously, if you're hearing us you already subscribe or yes. you can subscribe at all the usual podcast places uh, including cbsboston.com please tell a friend uh, or maybe two and and get them in on it and uh, uh, you can reach us on twitter at studio bz pod or you could use my handle if you want to harangue me directly at keller at large i'm at paula eben wbz and i am at liam wbz i do want to mention What's there's this something note? here in the script that Jonathan, I guess, put in there. It says, hit up Insta for weird Liam photos. <laughs> which weird ones? <laughs> which which there weird are so photos many. have I posted? I, I guess technically it's not a weird Liam photo. It's more of a weird Eric photo. Oh, oh, oh yeah. Oh, the Man, Man Crush, Crush Monday. Monday. Man Crush Monday, yeah. Little background. We took a picture yesterday for Man Crush Monday. Mm -hmm. John, me, David Wade, and Eric Fisher. Not our idea, I should say. <laughs> our social manager... 
Our social, social media, media managers, manager, idea. Allison, who's wonderful, yes. said it was going to be Man Crush Monday. Eric decided to hop up onto the actual yeah, anchor. Kind of a Scott Brown pose in a Scott Brown. <laughs> <laughs> it's, quite a, it's quite a display of yeah. Man Crush. Please tag Scott Brown in this uh, podcast. Yeah. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah. It was actually that exact pose, the hand behind was, the head, the whole it thing. And it, and, and it blew up on Insta. And it's actually uh, uh, kind of remarkable. Uh, the response was tremendous. Mm-hmm. And many people chose to vote for who they thought was, was the hungry. Yes. And uh, who came in number well, one? Well, I, you know, I don't want to brag, but uh, <laughs> the silver fox. Just goes to show that the uh, many, many women in the greater Boston area and around the country <laughs> really appreciate a mature, cerebral type, oh, rather than just the hunky, young, you, good-looking guy. Yes. You know, it's going to take you a few years to get there. Hmm. Keep Which I prefer to be. You're wise okay. Don't don't be. <laughs> Liam has a don't. lot of followers and. Fans. Absolutely. Aww, well, Including thank right you. here. <laughs> That's thank right. you. And on that note, shall we bid people farewell of with course. our usual farewell? We'll, we'll, we'll be, be seeing you. you. <laughs> oh, God. I don't think anybody's listened to the podcast long enough to actually get to that part. No. Yet, because no, no one has ever true. said yes. that is the cheesiest yes. thing I've ever heard. Yeah.